you know, I want an audience to go in and experience a good time, but also learn something, be affected by it. Let's try to make them laugh so we can make them cry. Because you're just more open to really feeling something deep if you've laughed a little bit. That's Caroline, artistic director, producer, puppeteer, actor, story creator, director, and mom, who dropped in to share her vision of storytelling, rendering theater into subtle PSAs for social and environmental justice, and her liberation from actor to puppeteer. She even made a marionette dance for us here in the studio, reminding us that nothing dies like a puppet dies. Isn't that chilling? I'm Amber. And here's Angelica with our weekly chat. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Angelica. Thanks for joining us on Chatty Crafties, a show where I celebrate my creative friends to get inspired by everyday art. You're the producing artistic director for the company Glass Half Full Theater. Um, Amber recently met you after seeing Polly Mermaid at the Vortex Theater. It's a show with a hybrid of puppets, trash, and genius you directed, co-wrote, and designed. So what kind of art, can you like give us a list of all the good stuff that you're into that expresses yourself creatively? Sure, yeah. First I'd say I'm a puppeteer because puppetry encompasses so many different artistic mediums that that's really like my home zone. Um, but I also got to puppetry via other art forms and have moved away from it and done other things related. So I'm puppeteer first and foremost, but within the context of puppetry, it usually means coming up with a story concept, building an entire show. And by building, I mean figuring out what the concept's going to be, writing it and by that I don't just mean dialogue but sort of what's the context of the whole show doing all the research for it directing it sometimes I perform in it sometimes I don't I didn't for Polly Mermaid um partly because it was a really complicated show and we had great people other women it was all it was seven women in the show that I wanted to pull in but it also can mean designing the elements in it designing the puppets in a show so it has sort of an art medium a theater medium a writing medium. There's almost always some musical element. I'm not a musician myself, but I love to work with composers to create original work. We've worked with a bunch of different composers and bands in Austin. For probably half the shows, we've created original music here with somebody where, you know, we kind of sit down and talk about the themes and then they go away and write this music and come back and work with us and break it down and shape it out. So it sounds like a lot of this is a collaborative process. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the collaborative process. Um, I feel like traditional theater, and still I think so often in theater, there's this idea of a playwright who comes up with an idea and then works on it for years, and then if some producer gets interested in that play that's written on paper, then they take it to a director and then the director puts their ideas on it and then they go and cast it and try to find the people that in their imaginations would fulfill that project. Like that's the normal way of making theater, kind of the standard. And I don't find that as intriguing or interesting. Like I feel like the more people in the room have had a have had an influence on the shape of the piece, the more people are dedicated to it and the better work you get out of people. Yeah. It can be more time consuming. It is definitely more time consuming. <laughs> like it's not the most efficient, you know, monetarily way to get it to, um, to create work, but I love it. And I think it's much more engaging and the, you feel the spirit in the room. Like the whole point of theater is to, to me, is to create an experience in a room live with people. Otherwise, yeah, you'd put it on film or you'd put it in a novel. or There's all these other ways to, to tell stories. But for me, theater has to change the, the presence of a room. That's what it's for. And I think when people are uh, more engaged in and are part of the whole storytelling process from the beginning, they tend to, I don't know, just bring more to the room. That's my opinion. Um, what is it about being in a room of people? Is it their reaction? Is it, you know, maybe changing their minds, like seeing how they're engaging with the show does yeah. something for you? I think I really enjoy layering things in a show. Like, my goal is always... We often, okay, so at Glass Heffel Theater, we often make 
work that is sort of resting on a premise that's a often a political or social issue that the world is dealing with. You know, we do a lot of work about climate change or um, Latinx rights or, you know, feminism, <laughs> but I... I don't want to kind of recreate what you might get from a documentary or listening to an NPR interview or something like that. Like, I'm really interested in um, telling stories in really layered ways so that maybe one viewer will come in the room and they'll just watch a show and they'll think it's hilarious and they'll have a good time and they'll have a drink and they'll enjoy seeing performers on stage and then they'll walk out and go, that was really funny. Like, that's, that's great for me. Mm-hmm. But ideally... You know, my dream audience is an audience that wants to have a good time and enjoy something and see something really well made, but also kind of listen to the message underneath the story where you're kind of working on multiple levels. And that's what I think theater can do really well. So yeah. if we want to go in and talk about climate change and it's just it's such a downer, like we, we know oh climate change, you know, and if you just go in and present facts, it's going to. It's we we're just, there's sort of an attitude of yeah I already know it's a problem I don't uh-huh. want to look at it but you know we just made a show that technically is really about climate change and the destruction of the world and the potential for us to create an environment that people have so thoroughly trampled on that it will never function the same even if the Earth manages to completely destroy the human race and like mm-hmm. it will take millennia to kind of overcome the the impact of human presence on Earth so even if that happens. You know, I still... Which it kind of is, yeah. everyone. <laughs> it's kind of happening. But, yeah. you know, we made a show that was like a sci-fi, uh, sort of a hilarious sci-fi drag, gay, queer theory. You know, like, it had a whole bunch of joy in it, even though the sort of underlying metaphor was, was sort of a heavy thing to yeah. deal with. But that's also how we kind of like to get at you and make you think about things and... It's always really enjoyable to me when people come back and say, oh, I love that show. It was so funny and I had a drink and my, my friend was hilarious in it and all this stuff. And then they'll, mm-hmm. but they'll stay like, I've started like recycling differently than I used to. You know, <laughs> that for me is the dream. Like, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. And it seems like seeing the show with a group, I mean, if it were um, like a movie or something like that, someone could see it individually. And mm-hmm. so they're not having that dialogue, that mm-hmm. conversation afterwards. But the fact that it's a play, they're seeing it with people, they're going and talking to people afterwards, possibly talking to you and asking questions, and it becomes this ongoing conversation for however long the play is on for. Yeah. And I bet that's another element that would be Yeah, the, it's so easy now to get online media. It's so easy to be be entertained or or to learn information like both of those things are valid things you, we get out of online entertainment but a play never comes out the exactly the same way twice like the audience influences the play mm-hmm. and I think that's more apparent with new work because when we're devised work like when the people in the room have made the piece they're feeling all of the audience interaction in a way that's different like, I've been an actor. I've been, you know, I've been in a checkoff play or whatever, like an old, old-fashioned, old-school play where I might, you know, do the role really well and then people walk away and say, you did that role really well. That was a good version of this role or that was maybe a not good version of this role or I, you were too tall to play her or whatever. You know, there's yeah. just sort of, there's a reaction to the piece as it stands on its own. But when it's a new work and everybody in the room has sort of had an impact on it, they're listening really carefully or at least that's our always our goal to listen carefully to the audience. So one audience might find everything all that kind of topical stuff, really meaningful and powerful and take the show in a serious way. Like this show we just did, some audiences really, really like felt the message and took it kind of in a dark and serious way. And then other audiences like totally blew past that message kind of as a group, as a collective, and just had a great time with all the sort of silly sci-fi queer jokes that we were throwing out the whole time. And what I hope is, that's just the overall experience. Like, your experience from the stage is, oh, we're getting, like, different reactions to different things. But every time, uh, it's like the audience has a collective experience because they're in a group and because of how the show went that day and how, what they talked about afterwards or maybe what they did before. And that that's something that you just won't get from uh, from a more static medium. Like, sure. You know, yeah, that online. makes a lot of sense. Um, how long does a show take to prepare? I would say it usually takes about a year to go from kind of a concept to, you know, opening the show. But but we don't work on that show every day. We're sort we tend to be flipping a couple of things back and forth and kind of we'll do a standard practice for us is to just sort of have a 
a week or two where we really just kind of get into the idea and figure out what do we think we're doing, especially as we know we're going to have to publicize it and pitch it and all this stuff before it exists. Uh-huh. So there's kind of that couple of weeks thinking about it, set it aside. We usually do some kind of workshop that lasts about a month where we try things out, experiment, come up with dialogue, throw out half of what we came up with and try again. And then as it gets a little, you know, go away, build puppets. A lot of time it takes time to build the puppets, the set, all the kind of... Um, you know, our sets tend to be really interactive. Things move or they have to be transported and shifted. It's not just like go find a couch and a couple mm-hmm. of glasses, you know? Yeah. Um, and then then it's usually about a two months to six week kind of period of really, really finally with the kind of semi-finalized script going in and finishing, finishing it out and opening it. So it's about a year overall. And how are these funded? Is it from the shows themselves? Yeah, so we get funding a few places. The city of Austin is one of our funders, so we do receive funding from the cultural arts department, and that really helps keep us going through the year, because obviously you're working on a show for a year from now, but you're not going to make the money on the tickets till later. Yeah. But it's also a matter of you kind of take some of the ticket funding from the previous show and start to move forward to the next show, and um, you're balancing those things back and forth. We're also... um, have frequently received grants from the Jim Henson Foundation, a couple of other, um, uh, a few national, a few local. Uh, and is that something that you um, apply for? Mm-hmm. And so you're you're also doing that while working through the concept of shows. Yeah, there's a lot of administrative work that goes with it, and that's part of. It's one of the complications that's particular to making original work because you basically have to convince somebody how great your idea is before your idea is fully formed. Mm-hmm. You st- and um, you start to get in a practice of figuring out, all right, well, this is, here's like my three-line synopsis of what I think we're going to end up making. <laughs> but we've gotten better at better at writing it in kind of a loose way so that we have a lot of room to shift it back and forth. Like Polly Mermaid, we were saying what we thought Polly Mermaid was going to be, you know, nine months before it opened, but we were changing lines until four days before the show opened, you know? Oh, sure. So there's a lot of kind of future planning and and sort of a lot of playwriting is sort of deciding what you're not going to do uh-huh. <laughs> and cutting away the things you've decided aren't part of your show, and then it helps you kind of narrow into what you're, what you're actually going to be doing. Distill it to the essence of mm-hmm. the show. How did you get into puppetry? Um, I was an actor, and I studied a, a very misunderstood form of theater called mime. Um, <laughs> and because mime is always associated with the Marcel Marceau, like, guy in a box that chases you around the street with a white face, and that is, you know, one of the forms of mime. Um, but it, mime is really a study of... Um, really specific movements within the body to tell a story, maybe with words, but often not with sort of very literal words attached to the story. Not in the sense of like a a dialogue or something like that. Um, But it's a very, very physical form of theater um, that I was attracted to, but um, also found could be a little bit limiting in in its structures. And I, because of that, I... um, I did end up going and, and studying at a school in Paris. After I, I did go to college, but after I graduated from college, I was still kind of looking for um, a community that was thinking about theater in, in a more abstract way than what was sort of what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't feel at home when I would do plays. It always felt a little bit like there wasn't quite an... I wasn't able to have enough impact on how the story came out at the end. I was just being... Uh, an actor puppet. or a director. Yeah, yeah, being a puppet, you know. And it, it, I think a lot of people love that and, and work in that very well. I was just finding, like, I just, I, this would be better if we just changed this or if maybe this whole scene happened on the ceiling or so. But I felt always, you know, a little limited in it. You wanted more agency in it. Yeah, I think so. And I, and as, because of that, it's why I like giving everyone else agency within the structures of the work as well. Because I remember feeling, like, caught by mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So as a director, I, I do tend to give a lot of agency initially until we really pare it down. And then you kind of have to say, all right, <laughs> let me let me make some final decisions here. Yeah. Um, but I ended up going to a school that's got a hilarious name. It's called Lecoq. <laughs> And when I said I was moving to France to study Lecoq, all my friends laughed about that. But it's from. <laughs> it's spelled 
spelled differently. <laughs> yes, it has a cute little Q and it mm-hmm. makes it very French. Um, what's really cool about that school, it's a really international school. Um, they take a hundred people from all over the world the first year, and then the second year they only let thirty of you stay. So it's basically oh. a lot like reality television. Yeah. This was before reality television when I went other than like the real world, but yeah. before those kind of reality um, kick you off the island type shows. But now I look back and go, that's a lot like what it was. They're kind of watching you throughout the whole year, and then they only let a third of you stay to do the second year. Oh, my the pressure. Yeah, it was kind of, um, I admired the way they handled it, though. It was very impersonal. It wasn't like, we like you, we don't like you. It was sort of, does this form work for you? Do you, are you bringing something to this form? Is it bringing something to you? So, yeah. um, But anyway... Because it's a very physical form and going and working in France where puppetry is, it's not seen as sort of a children's educational art form the way it frequently is seen in the United States. I had already been doing like my whole life animating objects as part of theatrical productions. Like when I was doing mime, I had a whole piece with, it was like me and this love affair I had with this chair and it was this very acrobatic piece with like me approaching this chair and then the chair approaching me and I would always kind of use my foot to puppeteer the chair and make it have this kind of interaction with me and then I made another piece with a ball another piece with a stick and I just sort of had naturally been animating objects without realizing that that's kind of a whole art form that's a little more well known in Europe than here called object theater so when I got there they did maybe a week at the school on object theater and I did some and they were like, "Oh, well that's that's what you do, clearly." And I'm going, "Oh, I had no idea this was a thing. Like people do this." So that kind of led me into puppetry. Some of the other a couple other people at the school did have more puppetry background and kind of saw they said, "You're a puppeteer. You need to look into this." And I just started kind of drawing it into the work I was doing. I was getting hired to puppeteer a little bit. I just had a knack for it and then um, ever since I came back to the States, I've just sort of always applied it somewhere in some form to, to anything I've made. But I don't, I don't have a very traditional approach to puppetry. Like a lot of puppeteers in the United States will be marionettists or they'll have studied a really specific form and then they work with that form. And I feel like conversely, I've kind of experienced a bunch of different world puppetry forms. And then when I'm making a show, I draw from them to figure out which one will will kind of make sense for that context. Do you ever use different kinds of puppets in one show? Yeah. And it's tricky and purists will be like, no, you can't. Or, you know, there are pure, there are purists who are bothered by the idea of like a human on stage with a puppet. But I think it's becoming more and more understood, especially as puppetry started to be used in, you know, even Broadway shows and War Horse and Avenue Q and all Mm -hmm. that. I think people are beginning to see it as a, a medium that doesn't have to, you know, have any one certain way that it's used. And in that sense, American puppeteers are very lucky because, you know, I met a puppeteer from India and she said, you know, if you don't, if you're not from the family that made this form, you can't do that form and you can't do any other form. That's obviously her experience. I can't speak for like India, but, but just talking to people from different countries, I met a woman from Turkey and she said, you know, there's this really specific form we do and it's very hard to break out of that form. In the United States, it's like, it's such a weird thing anyway to do puppetry that nobody's nobody's saying, no, no, you can't do that kind of puppetry. They're just sort of, it's an unknown and you can do what you want with it. But there is often an expectation that you're doing like um, Henson style, oh, you know, Muppet sure. puppetry for educational purposes. That's definitely the form that's most known here. Yeah, that makes sense. So how does writing for an audience of adults differ from writing for children? Because you've done plays for both. That's that's a really good question. I'm still figuring it out because ironically I had mostly made puppet shows, shows featuring puppets for adults. And then literally when I was pregnant was when I first started making shows um, for kids. It just was a coincidence. Uh-huh. Um, but then it kind of made sense to continue with that. I feel like um, the shows for adults, I have more freedom to really dig into political or maybe more uncomfortable subjects um, that can be dark or weird or scary or um, upsetting. And with um, the work for kids, I st- while I still... <laughs> I think of it as being a little more formulaic, but I also find that when I bring these shows to 
venues where where children's shows are more traditional children's shows are presented they're always like whoa that is out of left field like we still feel oh. really weird to uh-huh. to the sort of traditional american children's theater genre like we're not um just doing like bright and cheery <laughs> not that everything is but there is there's an overwhelming a majority of kind of bright and cheery Here's uh, a lesson. Mm-hmm. Educational or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we like to, again, really layer things and sort of say, well, this part you will enjoy if you're a tiny child and you just want to see moving puppets, but here's a layer that is getting it, you know, how is this person living and how are they, what obstacles are they facing in their life because of who they might be, you know. Yeah. Um, so they're they tend to be what i would consider slightly more simplistic but i think on the scale of children's work it still tends to push the envelope a lot like i've been told you know when i bring a a piece when i've been hired to do stuff for some of the larger theaters in austin they'll kind of be like oh she doesn't hold any punches does she you know like when <laughs> when i thought oh that was pretty standard you yeah. know so i can get away with a lot more i guess with adults um because there's no expectation of what it has to be do you find that the reception, once people see your work, that um, people are more open to it, where they have that reaction of, oh, I thought puppetry was this, but, mm-hmm. you know, you've shown me something else. Like, does that happen with every single piece? I, th- I feel like it. I feel like seeing it is everything for us, because um, it's almost never what people expect it to be. Um, and then... So if somebody can come and see a show, they tend to want to come and see what else we're doing. Mm-hmm. The hardest is getting people to come and see it in the first place because there are a lot of assumptions about what theater is going to be or what puppetry is going to be. And when you're bringing something rather different from both of those expected norms, um, I just am so frequently told that's not what I thought it was going to be. Polly Mermaid, for example, I think it was opening night when we did this show, Polly Mermaid. Um, the show opens with five sort of trash receptacles on the stage um and we ask the audience to come in and stick a bunch of different objects that they're handed at the box office into one of the receptacles and the receptacles say you know recycling landfill like they're different places that an object might end up recycling landfill um i think one of them was like burn pile (laughs) you know storage things like that and uh, this guy found me after the show and he said, I really thought it was going to be like a whole lecture on where we should put our trash. Like oh. That's what I expected the show to be. But no, instead, you know, lights come up, sound comes up and five people wearing like scuba gear climb out of the <laughs> trash cans <laughs> and, and, you know, stare at you and walk away with them. And then a mermaid walks out of a, you know, porta potty and monologues at you. And then, <laughs> you know, a scientist shows up in the next scene and talks to you about space time. So they were like, that was so not what I expected it to be. And I liked what that was a lot more than what, what I thought you were going to do, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so fun. So how does this art express your identity more than what you were doing before? It sounded like you were doing performance art and acting. And so why does puppetry and um, creating these, these worlds, why is that so important to you know your inner self? I think I've always been drawn to telling the story of the underdog or the, the misunderstood or the, the overlooked and that can apply to, um, you know, we have a story that features a, a, based on Cinderella, that features a, you know, a young Latina girl who's being overlooked by her stepfamily. But we also have, you know, a story about a plastic cup that somebody bought at the 7-Eleven and drank from and threw away and it's feeling underrepresented in Uh its life. You know what I mean? So it's, I think the thing about puppetry that I love is, it sort of reminds people that everything might have a purpose in a life and an inattention and not to overlook anything as unimportant or, or unnecessary. So we'll often tell these stories of, of um, you know, strength of the human spirit or whatever, but it might be, it might be a person <laughs> in a more traditional sense, but it also might be a piece of trash or a, you know, a polar bear or a, a rain cloud or something that, you know, that we wouldn't traditionally maybe throw your empathy at, towards. Um, and I love that puppetry can, with just the tiniest movement of a limb of a puppet, make you uh, see or feel 
something that you wouldn't normally have put your attention toward. It brings things to life. Yeah. It sounds like you are affecting people's perception quite a bit. I, I love to think, I appreciate hearing that because I love to think about it that way. Um, it's something I'm really intrigued by. I think, for example, a filmmaker has the eye of the camera as the thing that says, please look at this, look at this, look at this. You know, you're when you get a close-up or a, a long shot or whatever, they're telling you what to look at. And we're really used to seeing film do that for us. With traditional theater, a lot of the time, you know, it's a full stage and you're looking at different characters and your eye can kind of look at whomever you might be drawn to in that moment. Puppetry's really always asking you to look at a really specific place all the time. And the movement, and more importantly, like what doesn't move on stage is, is teaching you to look at what does move on stage. So a puppet, um, even more effectively than a human, if it's asked a question and instead of answering, it just like turns its head to the left and looks down and sighs. And you see its lungs come up and down, even though you know it doesn't have any lungs, like subconsciously you know. But if you see that movement of this inanimate object having a, a, like a moment of loss like that, you're, you, you feel it. Be and I think it has to do with the fact that we know the object isn't actually feeling it, so it leaves room for the audience to feel it instead. Oh, Does that make sense? Yes. I often felt when I was being an actor, like I was just performing actions, and then you were saying, yes, I understood what you meant, or I agreed with you, or I hated your character, or whatever. But with puppets, it really feels, and, and physical theater similarly, because it's really about shaping how the body moves all the time. We're asking you look really specifically at, like, that creature's lungs and watch the air flow out of it and you understand defeat in that mm -hmm. moment you know mm -hmm. so it sounds like there are moments of a lot of things going on um a lot of visual elements a lot of movement but also a lot of stillness in space as a director i always think it's really important to to carve what's happening in the space and make sure that there isn't extraneous movement where you don't want it any movement on stage tells a story, particularly with puppets and particularly with shows where the text is not the, you know, the main way that the story is being told. Frequently in a more traditional play, you're getting information because of the dialogue that's being spoken. You could, you could potentially get it if you closed your eyes. But with physical theater and with puppetry, all of the, vi all of the visual experience is, is informing you of the story. Um, so... I can get to be a real stickler as a director of like, you know, why is your hand moving there? Oh, I didn't mm -hmm. know it was moving. Mm -hmm. Does does it need to move? No. Well, then maybe don't. Or And not like everybody holds still because there's a ton of movement. But anything happening on stage is going to tell a story whether you meant to or not. So try to make sure you're only moving in ways that tell it. So you're not accidentally telling some story that's not important to the moment. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. And so a lot of that has to do with dialogue, but you also tell stories in different languages. So how does language play into your storytelling? Yeah, I really, um, I feel like the best stories on stage, you almost wouldn't need language, like verbal language. What verbal language does really well is teach us information we don't already know. But what physical language does really well is remind us of things that we know innately that we maybe weren't thinking about until we got reminded of it on stage. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like, so I tend to think the emotional storyline needs to be shown visually like that. I ought to be able to have a character, whether it's a human or a puppet or a cup or a you know, a, a spoon standing in as a human or whatever the kind of object or puppet might be. You know, if, if you want to tell a story of loss, you ought to be able to make that character cross the stage and stop and sigh and look down and turn and the, you know, the turn of their head and the way they leave and where they choose to look, that should all tell most of the emotional story. So then any words that need to kind of be added in on top of that are really about facts or information. And that doesn't mean they don't also have emotional links and stories and, and things to add about the character, but um, they, they shouldn't, it shouldn't all come from the text. And I think the mistake that's often made is because American theater or you know traditional theater is often passed down by the text instead of the movement. It's sort of 
that's what's considered the most important information giver. And then each individual director comes at it and says, oh, I would like you to stand here or move here for whatever reason they're trying to achieve. Whereas um, in our work, we really want you to get the emotional storyline um, from the physicality. And the reason I say that is we do a lot of work where maybe half the show's in Spanish and half the show's in English. So we don't want you to feel excluded if you speak one or you don't speak one of those languages or both of those languages. You ought to still get a really significant part of the story and certainly all of the emotional storyline just from what you're watching visually on stage. So I've done shows where, you know, every character spoke a different language and you as the audience are not supposed to understand them. You know, some of the stuff I've had the most fun one with was a show that we, you know, I did in France, but the two women in it, one was speaking Swedish and one was speaking Danish. So nobody knew what they were saying, right? But you're, you follow the story anyway because of what happens. And it can be used for comic effect or dramatic effect or whatever you want, but um, it, you don't necessarily have to get all that information from the words. What yeah. a lovely challenge. I mean, it's like another layer of movement because it's, you know, sound moving through your ears. You're mm-hmm. not really registering, like you said, the verbal text of it. But, you know, it's just you can register the emotion. Just yeah, fine. as long as they're committed to it and mm-hmm. you are, you're following their intentions. You met your husband through puppetry, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do you, do you collaborate with him or do you work together still? We do. Um, we have found our relationship works best when it, one or the other is clearly in charge of a specific show and then the other supports. Um, because we have slightly different aesthetics and slightly different... Um, we met because he also likes to make puppet shows about sort of political situations and things like that. So we, we were both really driven by theater for change and telling a narrative because we want people to take something away from it, which is... There's not that many puppeteers running around doing <laughs> yeah. that, you know. So it was sort of funny that we were both puppeteers and we were both interested in what, kind of theater for that purpose. What a specific thing to have in common. Right, <laughs> it was completely bizarre. But but he, I mean, he said to me before that he kind of likes to hit people over the head. He wants to just bludgeon people with the message, and that he's described me as being kind of more subtle, where I like to layer a couple of things together and let you walk away and say, I, I see, I think I'm seeing the connections here after mm-hmm. experiencing that show, but I can be a little more subtle about it. So if when we work on each other's work, I understand his style, he understands mine, and we can perform them for each other. But um, so far, it's been more successful to kind of let one or the other be clearly in charge and then perform the role they, that's needed on that show. But we have done a, a lot of work together. Well, we met, we met at the um, National Puppetry Conference, which is so ridiculous. That's adorable. Right? Pretty adorable. Everybody walks in the room and sits down in a huge circle. It's, I don't know, 70 or 80 people. It might be more by now. I haven't been in a few years. And you go around the circle and you say, well, here's this piece I'm thinking of working on. And it's called the circle pitch. And you're basically saying, I'd like to make a little piece about this. Mm -hmm. And um, we didn't know each other yet, although we'd overlapped a little bit at the conference. Um, And he he was happened to sit right next to me. Well, I say happened to. We might have accidentally sat next to each other. I had already noticed him. Yes. But um, we sat next to each other, and he went first in terms, you know, the circle went around a circle. Um, the pitch went around the circle, and he said, I'm going to make a piece about um, the Dust Bowl uh, when Charles Lindbergh flew over the America, and you know, it's in the 1930s, everybody's starving, and he's funded by the government to fly across the country to prove American might while, like, Texas is starving, you know. And apparently he crash-landed um, to these people who'd been kind of trapped in the panhandle. This was like an alien falling out of the sky, and they didn't know what to make of him, and they didn't know what was going on around him, and he basically, like, fixed his plane and then <laughs> flew off and didn't help anybody. So Connor says, I want to make a show about that. And then I go next and I say, I want to make a show about, um, you know, using object theater in which a bunch of office supplies are on a desktop and then the typewriter is removed and it's replaced with like a shiny new, it was when Mac computers were white, the like white Uh Mac tops. It was like, ooh, and it's replaced with this shiny new computer and they just like wage battle on it and destroy it, you know, because kind of talking about how we tend to throw things out you know, when we don't find them useful anymore and we replace with the new without really thinking about it very much. So we sit down and both say that and we turn to each other. We're like, I want to work with you. Because <laughs> <You know? Awesome. laughs> we both found these really ridiculous ways to tell these yeah. uh, 
you know, political stories, but his is like bang you over the head political, mm-hmm. and mine's like, why do we throw out tape dispensers? Yeah, how come there are no more Rolodexes? You know, like very <laughs> a conceptual. More do you ever include dance in your shows? I have. Um, it's funny because I've had shows called dance before, even though I would maybe not call them dance. And I think it's just um, something that comes from working in a very physical field where, for example, I have shows where there's almost no dialogue at all, and the whole show is seen by watching the movement of the characters. And that feels like dance if you don't have a a different vocabulary word for it. And I think sometimes it just gets called dance because uh, physical theater is is a less known term and and Mm -hmm. (laughs) nobody knows what to do with it. And so... You know, I've, I've, I have a show called The Orchid Flotilla that's a, a two-person show, myself and Griselda Silva. It takes place on an ocean of trash on a grocery cart, and I'm a, a woman who lives there alone in kind of an imagined future, just repurposing trash to sort of continue to survive in this weird trash ecosystem. And then Griselda Silva plays my daughter, who's born under kind of magical circumstances because of, because of an interaction, a sexy interaction I have with a, a styrofoam wig head. Um, <laughs> with again slight of puppetry he sort of sits between my legs like between my knees for a minute and he, my legs kind of become his body and then we have this oh, little wow. sexy interaction but I end up losing him part way through and it's very you know demoralizing for the character until the result of that is this uh, daughter who's born to me that lives downstairs. Like, you know, on a grocery cart where you put the toilet paper or whatever, the large items, she sort of lives down there and I live up top on this yeah. trash island. Um, and, you know, that show has been referred to as dance, which I thought was really funny because I I never really leave the craft. Like, I never leave the... Gro- there are no dance steps in that show. <laughs> but it's a very... Um, sequential show with a lot of precise physicality to so that you follow the story that's happening kind of in the internal dialogue of her mind. So yeah. I see how that looks like dance. Yeah. And dance is also another medium that spans so many different things. You know, there's plenty of dance that doesn't have steps to it as well. So Right. Um, do you have a favorite show? Is there one that's, you know, one of your babies that... They're love? all so different. Um... I guess to perform, I really do love the Orchid Flotilla, the show I was describing, just because when we made it, it felt very audacious to like ask people to come watch for an hour and five minutes while we sat in a grocery cart covered in trash and, and sort of tell this really pretty poignant story about life and death and growth and loss with very few words and, you know... Uh, it, it always made me laugh to perform it because I start out in the show hidden and I appear, but it's just like my hand and my foot that talk to each other, not verbally, but they have sort of an interaction. And it actually became our logo logo for Glass Eiffel as a hand and a foot in shadow talking to each other. I saw a picture of this before you came in. Yeah. So it kind of came, it came from that, but, uh, so it's my favorite to do just because it always used to make me just before the lights would come up, I would just be in this hidden in this grocery cart, just giggling, thinking, <laughs> I can't believe I'm going to make people watch this. And, and, and because it, it, it's one of those shows that because it's really nonverbal, people would come up after and say, okay, I think I got it. So like it was you and there was this wig head and did you, did you guys have oral sex together at one moment? You know, like they... And everybody knows exactly what happened. Nobody ever didn't get it, you know. Yeah. But it has such a it's such an enjoyable show to have people be like, okay, here's what happened. Here's what you were doing, you know, like, because yes. it is not super um, you know, verbally explicit in that way that, you know, with a regular play, you're not checking in to find out if you understood, you know, what somebody said. I, so it's maybe the most fun for me to do, um, but in terms of um, watching from the outside. We have a show that's called Once There Were Six Seasons that we've done several iterations of and we're actually going to bring back again um, in May. And it's about climate change and it's um, about six or seven different environments around the world that are being affected by climate change. You know, we have the Arctic and uh, a a mining town in um, Eastern Africa and... Uh, a, a sinking island in sort of in the border of Bangladesh and India, and we've we made all these um, 
huge kind of landscapes, but entirely out of recycled materials. So clouds are made out of bubble wrap and um, the landscape is sort of torn up paper. And there's all these teeny tiny puppets that are, you know, smaller than your hand that are living in these environments that are shifting around them. So not only are the puppeteers performing the puppets, tiny, tiny puppets, but they're performing the landscapes as they shift around them, sort of oh, wow. like um, icebergs as they're cracking apart and the polar bears, that are the mother polar bear that's separated from its baby polar bears, there's sort of cracks forming in the icebergs and so they're floating away and kind of, you, you get to watch a little bit like a planet Earth experience, but made out of recycled materials. Um, and we've done that at the National Puppetry Festival and a couple times at Salvage Vanguard Theater here. And as well, we made a, a youth version for Zach Theater a couple of years ago. And that show's been really poignant to see how people react, and in particular children, actually, to sort of understanding the, uh, the way that um, we as humans are causing our own problems through climate change. So when you watch a puppeteer not only perform a character, but also the thing that's destroying the character at the same time, like they're, they're contributing to the problem themselves. And it has a nice kind of metaphor in that abstract way, but also it's just um, a really beautiful soundscape and a neat opportunity to, to recognize. We have a scene that takes place in Texas, actually, and it's this really idyllic farm and what I think of as the dream idea of what a Texas farm is, and then you watch it kind of have to get so sold off parcel by parcel to, you know, to uh, oil drilling and to an oil pipeline, and as things dry up and animals are being sold off and the cows are taken away, and so you sort of have this desolate landscape. Um, it you're watching kind of your idyllic sense of what Texas is sort of crumble before your eyes in fast motion. Yeah, and um, it it's it can be very moving. I think for people to see that, not only recognize their own landscape here falling apart, but then say, oh well, then when I watch that town in the Philippines get destroyed by a cyclone, I I understand that that's coming for us as well. Mm -hmm. um, it's also a show that's meant to highlight how much worse climate change is for. Um, some of the more impoverished nations that don't have the same opportunities we do to adjust to those changes. Like if it gets hotter in Texas, we turn up the AC, but that's not working everywhere. It's also exacerbating the problem. So. Sure, sure. So. Gosh, I can see why that would be so important for kids to really like wrap their minds around it because it's one thing to explain to my kids like, well, we recycle and we compost and we're trying to reduce how much we're throwing away. And then if we see litter out there, at least, you know, my kids are telling me like, oh, somebody littered, you know, <laughs> aghast. And I'm like, yes, exactly. What yeah. are they doing? But they don't really know what that means beyond our actions. Mm -hmm. And so to see the ramifications on the environment in a really quick way seems like it would really make that, drive that point home. Yeah, I think it helps kids to understand, well, to empathize with the problems going on in other parts of the world, for, for sure. one thing. And also to realize that that is one of the biggest things they can do is recycle and and reduce and um, and really impact their the structures at their school or other places they have some control over. Because if we all just sit around and recycle in our home, own homes, that's great. But where where we make the most impact is, of course, influencing societal structures and forcing larger swaths of of uh, society to change you know putting in uh impacting you know how commerce works and things like that and if we have a generation that grows up being really convinced of that i think we will make more headway in the future than we're maybe struggling to do right now right do you have any shows coming up yeah um we're so well for one i mentioned we are going to bring back once there were six seasons at the Dougherty Arts Center in May next year. Um, and the idea with that is we want to really build out the whole, all of the different environments onto the stage. Dougherty has this really deep, huge stage, and we want to, um, with the previous show, we had each location on a different platform that would roll in and out, but we want to just build it all out. So we kind of make this almost 3D map of the world that puppeteers can hide inside to, to do the whole show. So it's it's the show as we've done it, but we're reframing kind of structurally how it's working. Yeah. Um, but our newest work that we're just starting on right now, right now we're calling it the Kukui Project. It will probably have a different name by the end. But Kukui is a, 
is like it's like the boogeyman legend from Mexico and other parts of Latin America. Um, the cuckoo is like the thing that scares you that grandma tells you about. Like if you're bad, the cuckoo is going to come and get you. Um, and there's a lot of different Latin American uh, stories about scary things that come and get you. There's the old man with the sack and there's La Llorona and she's the woman um, th who drowned her children and she goes and walks by riverbeds and she's crying and you know you'll hear her crying in the wind but if you hear her you know she's gonna get you and she'll drown you as well all these different stories to get kids to behave basically sure so we're taking some of those uh, some of the folklore around that and combining it with this idea of an immigrant family in uh, in Texas um, Mexican well Latin American immigrants probably from further south than Mexico but um, an immigrant family living in Texas um, who are at risk of deportation mm -hmm. and the some of the characters are going to use the Kukui stories to just train the youngest daughter in how to avoid being deported by the immigration authorities like using it as sort of a structure for teaching um, and it's Right now we're looking at it, it's probably going to be a kind of suspense horror drama kind of thing, probably with a fair amount of comedy in it as well. But it really fo focuses on this immigrant family, but with a big helping of scary terror kukui stories and puppetry forms and things like that to kind of recreate that feeling of suspense of what it's like to live in constant fear of losing your way of life and being returned to a, a situation that's essentially incredibly threatening and deadly right um that people are facing you know south even of the mexican border mm -hmm. so the kukui project is something we're going to work on over the next year but we're doing a first sort of in progress sharing of some of the scenes that we're working up right now at the Dowerty Arts Center in September, between September 14th and 21st. We're doing about four different sharings of it. And we're probably going to involve some community groups with ideas about, I don't want to name them yet because we're not sure who all is signing up, but we'll involve some community groups with literature and information specifically for immigrant families, but also for people who are looking to assist those families or, or provide political support. That's so wonderful. That sounds like a really important project. Um, how often are you in your own shows, and how often are you behind the scene? I find that I can be in one of my shows if there are five or fewer performers total on stage. <laughs> and oh. once I get to a larger cast, it's I, I feel like I'm starting to fail the group as a director. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there have been shows where I thought, maybe I should have not been in that because I do feel like it's a little bit harder to see it from the outside. And um, if I'm a, a, a main focus character, we've had shows where I thought, oh, I, I don't know how well I, I supported the other performers kind of at the end of the day because, because it's a lot to track your own structures and then also what everybody else does. So I feel like I've been in my shows um, less often recently. It might also be because I, I'm a mom and I have a three-year-old and my brain can just only handle so many things at once. Yeah, um, yeah, that is so true. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so true. So if you were to give yourself a title for your creative identity, what would your title be? I got a really cool award from the um, Austin Critics Table years ago called the Visionary Vivifier Award. I thought it was such a cool name, but they gave it to me and I didn't and nobody explained it at the <laughs> event. I had to go up and say, thank you for this thing. Um, but I found Robert Ferris after and he's the uh, arts editor for the Chronicle. And he came and told me, he's like, this the idea was you, you know, you have this sort of visionary um, concepts around bringing to light issues in the world. But you're all about bringing, th like, it, creating life out of things that are inanimate. If you ask me, what do you do? I don't know. Visionary vivifier is maybe not something I would give myself, but I also really appreciate the concepts behind it. When I was in college and I did study theater, um, a really awesome, famous playwright called Timberlake Warden Baker talked to my class. And she was a woman playwright when there were not a ton of woman playwrights out there doing their thing. And also she made work by working with groups of people. She's a playwright, but she would 
devise with actors first. So, you know, she set me on a path of, oh, that can be done. But she asked us just before she began talking, okay, raise your hand if you're here because you're an actor. And a bunch of actors raised their hand. And I didn't. And she said, raise your hand if you're here because you're a director. And a bunch of directors raised their hand. And I didn't. And she said, raise your hand if you're here because you're a writer. And a few people rose their hands. And, and I didn't. And I thought, what am I doing here if I don't <laughs> identify with any of these, um, uh, you know, jobs? And I think it's because um, I I don't just write a play and I don't just take a play that was written and direct it. And I don't just act in plays that were um, written and directed by writers and directors. You needed the hyphens. I needed the hyphens, but I feel like there's got to be something other than saying writer, director, actor. There's got to be, you know, story creator, story divisor, you know, so visionary vivifier, maybe. <laughs> maybe that <laughs> encompasses the idea, the, you know, an intention to tell a story by bringing something to light into life that might not have gotten noticed otherwise. And that's what I hope to do every time I make a project, so. Amen. Yeah, that was beautiful. <laughs> Beautifully put. Well, thank you, Caroline. Thank you so much. And thanks to our listeners, and we hope you'll stay tuned for more episodes of Chatty Crafties. I'm an actor and a terrible theater patron. More often than not, I languish, desperately bored sitting in an audience. And that being said, when I saw Polly Mermaid, I walked out feeling renewed and hopeful and so excited to find the director and honestly thank her for what I'd just seen. This September 14th through 21st at the Dougherty Arts Center, you can see a preview of the Kukui Project. Keep an eye out for Once There Were Six Seasons, coming up in May 2019. Visit glasshalffulltheater.com for more about their very excellent work. Our music was most excellently provided by Berman Swale. Find him on Facebook. And find us, our photos, links, and more behind every episode at chattycrafties.com. This episode was produced by me, Amber Moreno, and hosted by my crafty comrade, Angelica Norton, right here at Open Envelope Studio. Thanks for listening. Now get out there and make something.